Welcome to Critical Theory, the podcast. This is the Utopia 1313 edition, and my name is Bernard Harcourt. This year, at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought, we are studying concrete utopias, solutions to our crises. The fact is, they surround us, often hidden in plain sight, and we need to see them now and actualize them, support them, grow them, empower them. It's time to roll up our sleeves and realize now, in real time, our concrete utopias. So this year at the center, uh, we're going to explore different experiments and models to reorganize society to address head-on our current crises, really existing, actually existing concrete utopias. There's no room this year for dystopias. We're too familiar with our present. We know its history. This year, we're going to write together a history of the future. We're going to be teaming up this year with WKCR, a radio station at Columbia University, working with Charlie Smith and Giselle Williams, who've put together remarkable conversations with some of the guests who've appeared at the Utopia 1313 public seminars at Columbia. Charlie Smith and Giselle Williams from WKCR Radio interview Professor Alyssa Battistoni, a professor of political theory and critical theory at Columbia University. Alyssa Battistoni participated in our third Utopia 1313 seminar on union organizing and the future of work. Uh, we read and discussed her work, uh, Spade Work and Labor Without Love, uh, as well as The Undercommons by Fred Moten and Stefano Harney. Uh, and we were joined at that seminar not only by Alyssa Battistoni, but also by Jocelyn Chukianki, uh, who we've made another uh, podcast with, a Starbucks worker and union organizer out in Great Neck, New York, as well as Dominic Walker, who uh, is the elected chair of the Student Workers of Columbia, uh, union and a PhD candidate in sociology, and Helen Zhao, a former elected member of the Student Workers of Columbia and a PhD candidate in philosophy. At the session, at the public seminar, which I encourage you to view on Utopia 1313, we had a rounded discussion about um, union organizing. And uh, in this session, uh, Charlie Smith and Giselle Williams continue the conversation with Alyssa Battistoni. We're here with Professor Alyssa Battistoni, a professor of political science at Barnard College of Columbia University. And um, Professor Battistoni has been participating in the Utopia 1313 seminars. We're here today to talk a little bit about her work and uh, thoughts on utopianism. Uh, one of the, the biggest questions in organizing that's, that's organizing student workers in uh, universities has been this issue of, of, of uh, the combination of study and work. And this has been brought up by detractors just to, to, to worry that maybe um, creating a situation which is someone is both a student and a worker could disrupt some sort of holy 
uh, relationship between the teacher and and their student. But putting aside that for the moment, um, you know, as you have experience in organizing uh, a union at your own graduate school, um, which you write about in in, in your article Spade Work in M Plus One, I'm interested to ask what does it mean to to combine these categories in the most abstract sense? What what does it mean to have someone who is both a student and a worker who can study and work at the same time? And and you know what are the political possibilities of 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 such a of such a combination? Um, first of all, thank you for uh, for inviting me to the show. I'm excited to talk about um, these questions, and it's a it's a great place to start because I think this has really been the question at the center of um, grad worker politics, as you suggest, and um, both in a both in a sort of political organizing sense, but also you know quite. Um, that has quite literally been the distinction at the heart of, of legal um, uh, categorization of grad workers and, and really the history of, of um, grad worker unionization has, has sort of gone back and forth around this question of are, are grad students who also teach, do research, um, do these kinds of um, labor for the university primarily students, students and workers, um, primarily workers, like how to how to classify and categorize. And, and it's actually been very interesting if you look at some of the history of um you know, private university uh, uh, employees um, uh, and graduate workers in particular have sort of been <laughs> uh, have shifted back and forth in, in terms of uh, whether uh, whether they're protected under um, federal labor law and under the National Labor Relations Act. And so, um, you know, in the in the 50s, um, there was a decision that um, actually um, uh, a case brought by the trustees of Columbia. <laughs> um, and Columbia has actually been at the heart of a lot of the legal the legal fights over the years. But, um, you know, there was this this um, decision that that the that federal labor law didn't have jurisdiction over grad employees because, um, you know, they are uh, it's uh, universities are educational, not commercial um, in the 70s. That changes. And there's this decision that actually um, uh, grad workers are both, um, you know, that that's sort of position of the university is changing and it doesn't make sense to just say this isn't commercial that there's these sort of different activities going on they're getting bigger you've had this huge growth of like public universities in the 60s um, they play a much more significant role in things um, you know in, in educating the workforce and in doing research all of these things and it doesn't totally um, the kind of purely educational as if that's ever sort of fully separated from um, you know things like um, Again, like workforce training or uh, or, or preparing um, students for uh, for you know sort of economic life or, or whatever it may be, and you know maybe that's not necessarily our ideal of what education is, education for its own sake, but you know certainly um, in terms of how universities are are developed and organized, it's often been what they're trying to do. Um, so so you know there's an interesting shift um, where um, you know the the um, national liberal Labor Relations Board says, well, actually, we probably can't say that universities are just educational or totally separate from <laughs> these economic considerations. So that kind of goes back and forth um, in terms of, like, are workers primarily students? And so maybe they do some work on the side, but that's not their primary category. And whenever, you know, after that, whenever you see um, the board rule that grad students aren't workers, they basically say, nope, they're primarily students. And then, you know, in the most recent Columbia decision, um, they're very explicit that you can be both a student and a worker, um, that there is both an educational and an economic sort of, you know, function of, of uh, grad, uh, of what grad students and workers are doing, um, and that those aren't in conflict or intention. So that's, I think, you know, a really, it's really interesting to sort of track that over the years, um, and to see if you look again at the Columbia decision that they're, they're basically like, <laughs> this is, 
this isn't a you know attention this is it's totally possible to, to do and be both um in terms of how you actually organize around that that can still be really tricky because i think people are not necessarily um or at least in my experience i think this has changed some since you know um i started uh, i started grad school about 10 years ago and sort of was yeah organizing the union um up till you know sort of through the 2010s um and I think things started to change really, you know, at the end of that period. Um, and, and so, you know, it's sort of a different, it's been a big wave of grad organizing. But um, certainly, you know, you ran into a lot of, spoke to a lot of um, people at the university, like faculty who would say, well, this isn't really an appropriate relationship. Um, but also a lot of grad students who would say like, well, isn't this a little bit like we're not really workers, we're students. And I, I'm, I'm worried about sort of conflating these categories. But I think, um, you know, uh, I think that the the Columbia ruling is right. Like, there's I don't see why you would have to um, say say one is uh, you know, one or the other. Um, and in fact, there's something I think really interesting about the position of grad um, grad student workers because you know you sort of are um, uh, uh, in some ways you know both sort of mediating a relationship between like. Um, uh, you know, faculty who are sort of seen as primarily workers, even though you're also, you know, obviously doing research and things that are um, that are both work for the university and self-directed in ways. But um, and uh, students who who are there primarily to um, you know to learn. Though also many you know undergrads have um, like jobs on campus. I know Barnard RAs just um, moved to unionize. So there are a lot of actually I think actually many people at the university are within this kind of you know um, both and position of, of of you know what kind of like educational and and sort of um, uh, labor or, or workplace functions they're performing um, and in some ways a grad student the, the battle over how to classify grad students makes that most explicit I also ask, um, oh well thank you for for that response but I also want to ask a question about spade work um, because it's a piece that really resonated with me as someone who did a lot of organizing in high school actually and have had uh, a difficult time kind of returning to that robust level of putting myself out there because you know as you articulate organizing is very very hard um and that's something that a lot of people don't realize and that made me ask the question do you think that organizing is a form of labor itself and if so what are the implications of that yeah it's a great question and i'm really glad to hear it resonated because part of the reason i i wanted to write the piece was just feeling like um the the sort of experience of organizing was something I was having a hard time finding you know things written about and it was it is so hard and it is something um that is so um it's just it's just I found it was unlike almost anything else I'd ever done and so I, I was like how to how to describe this um and I do think I did did often as I was doing it and do often think I do think it's a kind of labor and it's this interesting kind of I think off of it of it as a kind of like like the labor of politics or like, a, you know, sort of the day-to-day -day work of politics and that, you know, spade, I mean, spade work, even in the title, and this is all a baker's term for um, sort of the spade work that prepares the ground for, for later sort of events. And it's, it is this kind of day-to-day -day unglamorous, um, uh, you know, in and out work that has to happen for these kinds of moments of like, whether it's the strike or a, a protest or a rally or, or, you know, sort of moments when, when you had these kind of more political events or spectacles or something like that, that people, see as these moments of political action but you know that rely on a lot of just like you know in uh, day in and day out um like talking on the phone and going to meetings and like um doing all of this kind of work and um so i think it i think it really is and it's um it's a, it's a kind of work that i think is is also kind of in a in a 
weird and interesting position, sort of um, like work that both combines, um, you know, I think, uh, I mean, it's it's different from, but um, but there is a sort of similar similar kind of uh, combination of like kinds of activity or something, um, where where you know a lot of people do political work, um, and I think most political work that people do is not like waged work. It's not, um, you know, there are some sort of positions within organ like political parties or organizations where you you are sort of it's your job, um, but political work is mostly not someone's job and so it occupies a sort of weird um status and position um and, and it can even be tricky when like i i mostly organize as like a you know just kind of um as you call it, like volunteer organizer i was i was just doing out in my own time um for one period i did work for um the union as a staff organizer and it's interesting how that also sort of changes um your I mean certainly your relationship to the organization how people see you all of these things so there's something interesting about what happens when you explicitly make it work and you're like this is a job now <laughs> um and I think there, there are things that are important about that because people um you know a lot of people um struggle to make time for it um you know they have to go to their regular jobs and then do this other job of organizing on top or you know go to um go to class and then you know organize like whatever your sort of primary activity is um but it's also um you know it can it can people often feel complicated about um treating it as a job or when people when it becomes someone's job so I mean that's like a whole other set of questions that you didn't ask about but I but to your question yeah, I think it's yeah. true <laughs> yeah those are all very helpful in helping me think about and I'm sure the listeners think about uh the functioning of organizing and you know yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, one thing you do a great job of, as we were talking about in in spade work, is showing the the mundaneness of organizing and and maybe even how that can be something romantic. Um, but there are, there is at least one moment in the piece where something maybe beyond the everyday breaks through. Uh, uh, when grad students go on on a, a fast, a hunger strike, and and as I understand it, you built some sort of structure outside of the the president's house um and stayed in it on, while you were on on strike and people were writing about this um people were doing work in in the the structure so considering the fact that we are talking about concrete utopias or the in other words the the ways in which dreams about how society could be are manifested in in the real world um that seems something like a concrete utopia to me. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what was that experience in the, the structure or whatever you would call it. What, what was that, you know, effectively like what was what what did people do? I'm glad you asked about that because um, I think you're right. It is it is very much a sort of concrete utopia. And so. Um, you know, yeah, as, as, as you, as you know, I think a lot of the, the day to day can be quite mundane. And, and I think there can be moments, sort of utopian moments within that where you build these very close relationships with people and kind of defy some of the, um, usual way that you're, you know, you sort of, you sort of change the way that you usually relate to each other or sort of, um, break through some of what I found to be like an alienating experience of, of, um, graduate school and kind of form these, this really, um, uh, you know, very different kind of community with other um other you know organizers and students and workers um and and so that i think there there are elements of the utopia and i think even in these kinds of like mundane meetings but um the you know the moment you describe was this very like um uh, a very um 
intense version of this and it was a very you know it was, it was a real break from from the norm and so um so yeah we uh we and this is sort of in the context of a um you know, a lot of strategic decisions that we have made that had to change really quickly when we realized that, you know, Trump had been elected and we had to sort of um, uh, sort of try to get uh, the university. And I, I was organizing at Yale to recognize us before um, a new um, a new like labor board got appointed before, like a Republican labor board came in. And, um, you know, as I was saying, <laughs> so much of grad work organization has been very dependent on like the law and then in turn on politics. And so you, you're sort of um, like. It, it goes back and forth with administrations a lot, but in any case, so we had this very tight deadline, and we were um, we were trying to kind of throw everything we could at the university, and so we did this kind of um, what we called a, a month of action, where we just did something um, really dramatic every day, um, and at the heart of it, there was you know a group of rotating sort of a, a fast of grad students, or so different people in the union would sort of fast, and then somebody would take over for them. And, um, you know, this is something I was organizing the Unite here, and they've done this um, This as a tactic in a bunch of different, um, you know, uh, union struggles, including there was like a Philly school teacher um, uh, strike that did this. And so, um, so we sort of used this tactic. And then there were these other, so we built this, yeah, we built this like tent thing <laughs> i'm trying to describe it it looked like an an overturned boat or something uh, or like a whale's rib cage um it was this very you know kind of structure in the middle of campus really um and um uh people would spend you know like both um sort of the you know the people who were fasting a bunch of people from the union would be there like throughout the day um uh you know uh people would sort of you know your friends and supporters and and whoever would come by um we would we were sleeping there overnight to make sure that the university didn't come tear it down um and the first couple nights in particular it was you know we sort of um did this whole you know thing where we uh we like did a like a sort of diversion action to like draw the attention of um the Yale police away and then like people assembled this structure <laughs> while we were kind of doing this like faint action and I mean you know it was it was a really we were just kind of like all over the place uh just doing kind of everything we could and and so we you know put it up and and then had people um you know the first couple of nights we had like a lot of people there to you know sort of say like we're not going anywhere and um people were ready to like take a rest if they um tried to disassemble it um and it was really I mean those were the nights I remember in particular it was just this really like amazing thing where you had like you know it would be like it was like midnight one in the morning and there were like dozens of people like um you know people from the union uh like you know so a lot of a lot of grad students and and sort of um people who had been organizing who knew from that but then also like faculty and people from um from new haven who weren't yale affiliated people who are not um you know in who are in other unions on campus and um you know i think the organization at yale was a little bit um unusual in that we were in the same union as other workers on campus so the um you know uh dining hall maintenance clerical like all the other kinds of workers on campus were all unite here so you had this kind of big like congregating <laughs> mechanism in a way um and so that was um and it was really amazing and people were like you know doing their teaching prep or like doing their you know like working on their their um like their schoolwork or um you know, uh, talking about like, you know, faculty supports would kind of come by and like talk about, I don't know, something you would read. Like cause it was this kind of like alternative vision of intellectual life that was that was in community that was um, not kind of uh, 
privatized in the same way that um, that Yale usually is. It was open to really anyone who came through. Um, you know, it was it was not unlike something like Occupy in a way where you're like, okay, we're doing all of this out in the open and anyone can come by and anyone can kind of be here. Um, whereas, you know, um, Yale and as I'm sure, um, I'm sure Columbia is very similar, um, or obviously Columbia and, and Barnard are similar in, in terms of being just like these private institutions in the midst of a city um, where you uh, it's really hard to, to get in uh, to buildings or to sort of access the resources that these very wealthy institutions have. And so so it was this like real shift um, and, and, uh, and what it felt like. And it was really, I found it very beautiful and very moving. And I, I still like think back very fondly on this, this moment um, of sort of disrupting the daily life of the university goes back to Claudia's question about the convergence of study and struggle and how that structure was actually was actually more conducive to those sorts of political conversations that you would have been hoping to have than in your own political science department at the time um which I think goes to demonstrate um how how imbricated the two are um I don't know if this is the last question, but I'm going to um, ask about kind of pragmatism and the dogma of pragmatism when it comes to organizing, because I feel as though that's something that actually discourages people from the kind of long durée of organizing and working toward um, a, a world in which we actually want to live that is actually livable. Um, and do you think that sort of dogmatic pragmatism can actually be something that like discourages people from organizing because like you mentioned in uh spade work um that you aim for a form of organizing that's transformative and pragmatic but can the latter kind of be um like a negative in some way yeah it's a really big question and it's one that um I still feel unsettled about it in a way. Um, and I do think it's really that kind of like push and pull, like, you know, you have to kind of always be keeping both in mind and, and which one predominates, I think, sometimes changes. And um, it's, uh, it's tough because if you do, if you, if you let go of the pragmatic altogether, then, um, you know, it can be hard to, um, I mean, both, you know, I think this utopian politics that are just like in a different mode, but it's not necessarily, you know, if you're like in, in the union, you're often like, okay, like we're going to try to like talk to people about very concrete, like, do you need like healthcare? Do you need, um, you know, childcare? Like, and so you are really kind of like in this nuts and bolts mode often that is very pragmatic and trying to plan out your strategy and all those things. And I, and I do think you really need that to, um, to, to kind of be anchored to, um, to the project of trying to like, uh, to like, you know, um, look really in a very clear-eyed way at, at the obstacles you have and all of these kinds of things and, and how you can get where you want to go. But I think that um, what you're saying in terms of the limits that that can place on political work, I think, are, are very real. And that can be um, um, both uh, and I and I think you're right to suggest that some of the pragmatism is overstated or sort of that as the, the only mode of organizing or, or that organizing is just about being like very like realistic and, and strategic and hard-headed because and you know that's that's part of it but the other part is this kind of utopian imagining and this like striving for like more because you know realistically you actually are not going to get most of the things that you're going for and if you just if that's all you're doing it for then it's going to always be i think very um kind of uh, underwhelming um it feels like um you know you you have to be able to to think exactly as you say of the long durée and the kind of what what the kind of longer how you even you know your your particular 
struggler project as part of like a, a larger um, set of things that people are are working through and trying to and striving for and um you know certainly i i felt like um it actually <laughs> you know i we were always talking about these again like concrete things that we were doing but i also felt like the things that were really motivating many people or were also motivating many people i don't want to say sort of either or but um was this vision of like a different kind of university of like um uh, uh you know of, of sort of um, challenging like the neoliberal university trying to make uh, a, to build a different kind of um, political intellectual community um, trying to uh, to think about more broadly like um, how how we connected to like the broader labor movement in the U.S. Um, I often thought about it you know I talk about this a little bit in the piece but like <laughs> this is part of building like a low carbon labor movement to like to like fight climate change which is like very grandiose and like you know like on some levels like yeah this, winning the grad union at Yale is not going to like and climate change but you have to have some kind of vision of like how what you're doing fits into like a broader um set of things that you that you like dream about and want to happen um and that is i think really i think sometimes in, in the pragmatic mode we can underestimate how much that actually is a, a real motivating force for people um uh and and necessary as a way of like orienting you <laughs> um in the short term to to keep an eye on the long term as well yeah so you mentioned this greater dream to to organize a low carbon labor movement and um a lot of your work in the past few years has has discussed the idea of uh thinking of the valuing the work that nature does in a different way um which is related to you talk about the the free gifts of nature which Giselle pointed out to me is i guess a marx quote or a reference um and and my understanding of that is to say that that there is a way in which uh labor does or sorry nature does reproduces the very basis of how we're able to have an economy but that kind of work the work of air flow and stuff is completely un, un unwaged um and so you 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 gestured toward this a bit but i'm interested to ask how that way of reorganizing the way we think about nature's work can relate to the way that we reorganize the way we think about 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 students work um and and if they might be able to be sort of thought of in concert yeah um i'm delighted that you've sort of managed to make this connection this is great and um giselle's right it is the free gift of nature is something um that i take from marx and try to develop in um, the book project i'm working on now um and so you know a lot of my my academic work and, and other sort of political writing i've done is about um it's just like both um both thinking about the kinds of like unvalued like ecosystemic activities that are necessary to sustain like life on earth <laughs> all other kinds of economic activities and so on and, and thinking about that through particularly um like a marxist feminist lens that also thinks about other kinds of unwaged work and and the you know how important that is and so i think you know i think in general one of the things i am interested in is is um trying to to um to think about what um what kinds of work we need and want to be happening in the world and why those aren't valued in the way we think they ought to be. And I think, you know, if you look at, we could think about this with like the political work question too, or thinking about political labor as an important kind of work that is, you know, is um, really not valued at all. Um, and, and, you know, why is that? How do we, how, how can we try to, um, uh, I think, 
make the case for why these things are so important and how we can how we could like live uh our lives differently um to um uh and and reorganize really like the economy um to to uh recognize the significance of of these kinds of labor that are really um that are really um in some cases not valued at all and in some cases um valued uh you know, really devalued. Um, so, you know, I write in other work about like um, the importance of, you know, of things like care work as being like low carbon work that are, um, you know, improve people's lives uh, in low carbon ways, but are, are usually not thought of as, as, as green jobs um, are tend to be paid um, very low wages. Um, you know, so there's a, there is it, they are sort of this, I think it was a sort of forgotten category of green jobs. And one of the things that I, that I would like um or have argued that we should be trying to do in climate policy is um, is not only, you know, we do need to also create like renewable energy jobs and things like that. Um, but as part of the kind of, you know, as always go back to Giselle's question about the longer t- term vision, actually what kind of, um, what kind of world do we want to build and live in? And, and I think that like um, a, a sustainable world is one that has to, um, to value nature differently, sort of value many of the kinds of human and non-human activities that are necessary for for sustaining life and making it possible for people to live good lives and not resource intensive ways. Um, that's part of what I think we really need to be shifting in the longer term. And so, um, and you know, and there are ways to do that in the shorter term, like <laughs> um, uh, you know, in some ways actually that that do correspond quite a lot to, to grad worker um, questions in terms of saying okay, we recognize care work is protected by labor law and we're going to give these protections to people who have often been also left out of um, of national federal labor law. Um, you know, domestic workers, care workers um, often occupy a sort of similar, like, uh, am- ambiguous status within federal and state labor protections. And so um, there are some very concrete lessons, I think, that that can move back and forth across these different kinds of, of human labor. Um, and then, you know, valuing non-human nature is like a, you know, um, it's something just like there's like no there's no labor law for like the tree that's absorbing carbon right so that kind of requires you to rethink a lot of other things and get into into uh, to sort of other ways that people have tried to to do some of that but um but i do think that there's kind of like a broader frame in terms of thinking um trying to um question the ways that that these things are presented like this is just <laughs> this is just education it's not work or this is like just taking care of someone it's not work um you know and, and these kinds of different things that that i think we have to rethink if we're gonna um um, really um, remake the world in the ways that I think that we ought to. Yeah, so as you talk about climate policy, um, one of the great victories, or what might be a great victory that happened very recently is is the, the Inflation Reduction Act. And I know there are people who, like Adam Tews, who's a professor at Columbia, looked at that and said, uh, bye-bye, Green New Deal, and hello, green industrial complex. Um, I can't say I fully understand what that means, but um, yeah, I mean, not to jump on you with 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 having to explain industrial policy or anything, but uh, yeah, do, what do you make of of this this recent possible legislative victory, and uh, what that might say about the future of, of of how we're organizing for for climate justice? It's a great question. Um, I'll try to do a very short version of what I think the the differences are and that I think Adam's getting at with the kind of shift. And uh, I think it's true. It is a sort of shift away from the Green New Deal model, which is much more focused on um, public investment and, um, you know, really using state resources to like, you know, build out 
whether it's like build out infrastructure to like directly employ people to just spend like a, a lot of money like if you'll think back to the very what feels like very long ago uh the the uh democratic primaries for 2020 like bernie sanders had a 16 trillion dollar green new deal plan over 10 years which was going to just like really throw um a huge amount of um uh you know of, of public investment money into a lot of different areas of um climate um uh you know sort of remaking i think many aspects of, of sort of public infrastructure um, public transit um, potentially some like social housing type things all of these different aspects of, of life and um try to uh as part of a decarbonization strategy um and green industrial policy i think is a much um narrower take on things and it's you know it is trying to basically um uh put resources into stimulating a, a you know um various sectors of um you know, of of green industry, right? So to like uh, to to get like um, EVs off the ground, or to um, to fund, um, it's a, it's a much more kind of I think subsidy uh, tax break driven, um, where you're trying to you're trying to like catalyze um, private investment um, through certain kinds of targeted, um, you know, uh, pol like some some direct funding, some again sort of um, uh, things like tax breaks and so on. But where you're trying to sort of get these private industries off the ground and and that was kind of what happened with um the obama um stimulus package way back in um uh 2009 where there was you know obama put like 90 billion dollars into solar and that you know that did really catalyze a lot of the u.s solar industry and so it, it can have effects um but it's a really different it is a really different model and so it's um much more oriented towards um again getting these uh, private sector firms off the ground and sort of giving um, state support for that. And so there are, there are I think, a lot of potential labor politics to that. They're mostly going to be, I think, a little bit down the road. It's not like, you know, some of the Green New Deal vision was like, do like, you know, what you did with, with like the WPA and stuff during the New Deal, just like hire people, have them go out and do the stuff we need to do. Um, the, you know, the IR is much more like, once um you know the the solar panel factory or the um you know the 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 ev factories are kind of going like you have you're gonna have a lot of green jobs created through that um potentially uh in different sectors and and sort of you know uh, there'll be some like downstream labor politics from that but it's it is a definitely a different model and, and i'll say the thing that i find most sort of or there there are a bunch of things that i think are um like recognizing all of the political challenges of passing things <laughs> that I think are that I worry about with the IR and it, one is like you know it's, it's definitely not at all I think challenging kind of the model of green jobs um and um there was an interesting moment early with the kind of build back better some of the um, build back better stuff and you know there was the kind of care infrastructure vision plus the like you know big climate spending um uh, early in the Biden administration and there were some potentially interesting moments there where you could see like investments in care going alongside these sort of climate decarbonization investments and they weren't pitched as like a, a package deal but I, w I thought there was some potential for kind of connecting those dots there but um you know the ira is much more conventionally like um green jobs are jobs in like either doing kind of green um like green tech uh like manufacturing and or um deployment so um pretty a pretty classic industrial work model um which again we need this job or like we need to be doing that stuff <laughs> and there are jobs associated with it and they should be good jobs and they should be like you know that should be part of a, a, a climate politics but um it is definitely a much more um a much narrower and more constrained view that um i think 
certainly, I think, loses some of the more concrete utopia that I think the, the, some of the Green New Deal was trying to strive for. So I'm able to just leave it there. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Alyssa Bassassoni. Um, we, uh, yeah, you can read her writing on, uh, well, you can read her article at Spade Work at M plus one. And uh, her book is co-authored, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, available at Verso Books. Uh, thank you for tuning in to WKCR 89.9 FM New York, WKCR HD. Uh, my name's been Charlie Smith, and my, uh, my co-interviewer... Giselle Williams. <laughs> and uh, yeah, tune in next time.